You're listening to Parenting in the First Three Years, the place where we explore the strategies and soul of parenting from pregnancy through the first three years of life. I'm your host, Ann McKittrick. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey there, and thanks so much for joining me for the podcast today. You know, from the moment you take that pregnancy test and get the positive result, there's a switch that happens in your mind, and that is that you just have this mindset of protecting that baby from day one. Even though we want to protect our kids in every way from any kind of trauma or stress or anything like that, truth is they are going to have to experience this and learn how to get through it. That's what we all have to do as human beings. So my question for today's guest is, is it really necessary in the first three years of life to try to protect your child from stress? Do you need to do things to give them resilience and grit even in these very first years of life? I think that you're going to love what she has to say because it is very uh, helpful to hear how the things that you do just naturally are the very things that are preparing your child to have initiative and resiliency and to be able to regulate their own emotions. And so I think you're going to love this conversation. My guest is Dr. Stephanie Galloway, and she's the author of a book called Happily Ever Resilient. She's got a doctorate in child development. She has been teaching child development in early childhood, the university setting for many years, and she is here to share some really amazing things with you about your baby and your toddler. So here we go. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Stephanie Galloway. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I think you have so much to offer to parents of really young children, so thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. You're welcome. So you have um, a book, it's called Happily Ever Resilient, and it's all about um, ways that we can use stories to help build resilience in children. So That seems kind of like older kids to me when I say that, resilience in children, but actually it can happen in these first three years. And so why don't we start by talking a little bit about that? What might be some causes of trauma in the first three years of life for a child? Well, I think when we we talk about trauma, we tend to think about the trauma with a big T. Um, child abuse, um, homelessness, parental incarceration, um, substance use disorders in the home. Now, those those significant things have actually been studied extensively through the ACEs studies, um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies, and there's tons of research about that. And while it's, it's um, when we think about, about babies, about kids below the age of three, we know that they don't have clear memories for the most part of anything that happens to them in later in life. And so it's easy to say, well, this stuff doesn't affect kids. But what the research has shown us is that the the stress response to traumatic events is automatic. It's in the brain. And while um, very young children may not have distinct memories related to it, those stress responses in the brain have been set up and they do end up impacting them in later life. So there's that whole big um, that, that big uh, understanding that that yes, traumatic events do impact very young children. Um, but I think that it's um, 
important to think. Most of us think, oh, well, I mean, that I know what's going on in my house and none of that is and my kid's fine. Um, and I think when we're thinking about resilience, especially, um, there are two big ideas that are, are critical to understanding for, for very young children. One is that we all need resilience, that um, even though the baby might have this ideal, idyllic, wonderful, uh, happy, happy, happy life, um, things happen to all of us. And and resilience as it's developed in uh, from infancy and all the way, actually prenatally, all the way up through adulthood, um, will serve all of us well. So I think it's an important message for everybody. But the other piece of it is that um, the Harvard's Center on the Developing Child um, has coined the phrase toxic stress. And that I think is a little bit more refined than um, trauma uh, because it's more individualized. So we each have our own temperaments. We we respond to the way that uh, we go through the world in very different ways. And there's lots of research um, on, on how temperament is inborn. Babies come out of the chute being very differently, um, very, they respond very differently to, to the same kinds of stimuli. And so you might have two children in the same home, two siblings who are very close in age, you know, 11 months apart, and they experience the same event. And one will be like, eh, okay, yeah, happen. The other child may, may start launching into significant stress responses. So toxic stress, I think, is is um, an important concept for those reasons, because it's individualized, but it also, it doesn't have to be one significant huge event that causes, like trauma, um, that causes this stress response that impacts development. It can be a series of smaller events. And there's tons of research that's recently come out on the pandemic and how everybody's traumatized now. Well, okay. Um, obviously some people more than others because of how, what has actually happened and because of our own temperaments. But I think that um, it's important to recognize that resilience is for everyone and that you may or may not know how your baby has experienced what's going on around you um, because, because they can't tell us. And right. that's, that's the hard part. Yeah. Um, but that I think a lot of this information is, it's just good to have in your back pocket because we can create these environments that, that help very young children develop the resilience so that life, they can handle whatever life throws at them or is throwing at them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm curious as you are saying that I'm thinking about different temperaments that we all have. And so, you know, let's say a parent has a, a temperament that is pretty easygoing and they have this six month old baby in arms that they, you know, are feeling like this baby is a little wary and cautious, a slow to warm baby, a little different from that parent's temperament. And they both experience the same thing. Let's say you know, they're walking from the store to the car and there's a huge crash of thunder that just shakes everybody. And you both are have experienced this kind of traumatic thing. How would you know by looking at your baby if that was stressful for them? What would be some cues to look for? 
I think, and I, I actually have been thinking a lot about this because my temperament, both my two children have very, I mean, they're both adults now, but they have very different temperaments. They immediately, they were very different. And I didn't recognize it until my daughter was born and my son was my first child. And so I thought everybody was like that and that everything that he was like, I did. And then my daughter came out and she was like day one, very different. And I am different from both of them in certain significant ways. So I've been thinking a lot about that. And I think that, um, I mean, babies respond, nonverbal children respond through their emotions, through their, through, through their bodies. I mean, Piaget talked about sensory motor development. I mean, everything's their body and their senses. And so looking at the baby, seeing those startled reflexes, crying. I mean, crying is their number one language. And as much as we don't like to hear babies cry, a lot of times when anything is stressful, that is their first response. Um, sometimes they'll withdraw, depending on if it's a very slow to warm child and the, the withdrawal is it, but often if it's something's very stressful crying and and active flailing it are the the responses that 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 we see and i think um some of the things that i've i've learned is that our our inclination is to shush <laughs> it's okay stop crying yeah. rather than comfort acknowledge oh that was a big blast of thunder that must have been so scary for you. It's okay. I'm here. We're going to be fine now. And and holding, like, I think physical touch. I mean, I, I again, as I think about how, how we nurture very young children, how we communicate our word, we need to use words because they understand obviously way before they can, they can articulate, but touch is such an important thing and and holding babies close and giving them that sense of it it is going to be all right as well as the words that that say um you know that is all right and yes i i used to love, <laughs> i still love thunderstorms um and i i uh one of my children did not <laughs> mm-hmm. and i'm right. sure that i i it was not a, a goodness of fit sometimes when I'd be like, yeah, let's go outside in the middle of this thunderstorm. And they, it was, it was, what's this crazy woman doing to us now? Right. Yeah. That's what they talk about there uh, with their friends. Now, my mother used to take me out in those thunderstorms. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, that really um, what you're describing is attunement, right? Being aware of your child and kind of knowing next time when you know there's a thunderstorm coming, just making sure that you're close by and that you're holding their hand and you're reassuring them before it even happens and right there when it does happen, if you can be, and you know, obviously. Absolutely. And there are also lots of great stories that I actually found. <laughs> Thunder cake for older children by Patricia Polacco. And I realized that I was it was not an attunement. Um I could I could I could scaffold that with with some stories about children being afraid of thunderstorms that it was okay because I think that's the thing with resilience. One of the the um, things that's so important to remember is that um, children don't know what they're experiencing is good, bad, or indifferent. They just experience it, and it's our job as as parents and caregivers to to assure them that what they're feeling is valid. Um, and not try to get them to hide those feelings or feel badly about what 
it's naturally coming out. And a lot of that is, is attunement and, and paying attention and, and offering them assurances that being afraid of thunderstorms is, is okay. And it, we'll work through realizing that it, it's not, doesn't have to be a scary thing, but what you feel is, is right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's really important. Right. In your book, you describe resilience as ordinary magic. Tell me about that. Um, that's the thing that I find most um, encouraging. There's a woman named Dr. Ann Maston, who um, out of the University of Minnesota, who has studied children um, in tra- from traumatized backgrounds for, for decades and tried to see what happened to those children as they got older and discovered that for some kids, they were okay and other kids were not. And she was very curious about what what was the difference. And what she discovered was she ended up calling ordinary magic because they are the, the what she described as protective factors that if you have these in your life, um, they help to offset uh, trauma, trauma and toxic stress and are what we call resilience, the ability to bounce back from adversity. And she identified them as ordinary magic because there are things that all of us in healthy relationships do or can do very easily. It's nothing, you don't have to be a, a psychologist or a therapist or a social worker or any anybody. You can be a person who cares about children and create this ordinary magic that is the resilience that will provide um, the children that you are with, with this buffer, this resilience that will help them throughout their whole lives. Um, the the protective factors that she described um, are kind of clumped into four big ones, um, three of which are very relevant for, for very young children, one of which is marginally relevant and becomes more relevant later. The first one is the big one that we all know, attachment and relationships, duh. <laughs> Like there's there's nothing that you can read about infants and toddlers that doesn't say that they need a strong bond with one significant caring adult in their life. That's every every, every model of, of child development I know it says the same thing. And, and she said, yeah, that's it. Uh, that is number one. And that's something that we can all provide. Um, she went into a little bit more deeply, though, and said that it wasn't just that one primary relationship that that supports children, but um, relationships with other caring and competent adults, whether it's a grandmother or a, a child care provider, a teacher, a coach, um, that those are can be significant relationships to bolster of this um, resilience. And the third kind of relationships that she identified was peers, um, siblings, very important. But when we think about children, especially children who are in group care situations, um, that ability to be able to form close relationships with um, peers and with children in mixed age groups, and if you think of an extended family, the cousins, um, those are all very significant protective factors for resilience as well. Um, so that, uh, that even just that one category, um, we can say, there's lots, lots of good stuff there. Um, right. Second protective factor um, has lots of components, but broadly um, can be kind of summarized as initiative. 
um, when I, when I think of initiative, I think of two year olds. I do it. <laughs> I do it now. <laughs> You're like, oh, but you can't. Um, but that's really kind of the essence of what initiative is that children need the opportunity as we all do to have feel like they have some control over what's going on and that their own ideas are so interesting and, and inviting that they can follow up on them and that that helps with their motivation and their ability to be persistent and all of these other wonderful traits um and that that they have a place in this world they have some kind of control and when we think about if something terrible happens to you even if it's something <laughs> stopped at, because of I, I live in an area where there are lots of lots of trains and I'm just moved here and so I'm never I'm ne I never calculate the train tracks into how getting from one place to another and that's a situation that if I'm stopped and a train a very very long train they seem to be here um, goes past me and I'm going to be five minutes late I have no control over that but. I have what I do have control over is taking a different way around if I'm in a hurry. And I think those those, you know, when we think of something that we don't have control over, that's when that stress response really starts to kick in often. And, and the same is for children. And so the more opportunities we can give them to not only take those little baby steps of control, um, uh, you know, what color socks do you want to wear today? You know, something simple like that. Um, it, it encourages them to feel like they are in control of situations and that they have self-efficacy, that, that they, they can help provide themselves with the ability to feel better um, right. if that comes up. And you're not going to see an, an infant um, responding that way, but all of these, these protective factors nurture the parts of the brain that will, as a child gets older, um, they don't just suddenly pop into existence. All of these experiences um, work from from really prenatal period on. Um, the mm -hmm. third big one is self-regulation. This is the big, <laughs> any challenging behaviors that we it's see. The big task. <laughs> the big task. It's the big ask. It's tied into executive functions. Um, but they that ability to be able to control um, your emotions, your actions, um, your, your body. Um, and that is develops a lot more slowly than, than we would all love. Um, it's certainly temperament is huge in the, 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 the ability for, of a child to, to self-regulate. And I think, um, understanding where, what, who your child is as a little individual will help you understand what kinds of things would help support them the best in developing self-regulation. But I think that what many researchers have discovered is how do you develop self-regulation? How do you have a child? It's not by having them sit still when they can't see two-year-old circle times. where <laughs> They don't have it yet. <laughs> not working. Um, so the um but that serve and return that that ability to be able to as a as a parent speak um identify for your child what it is that you're feeling so that they start to understand those things and tune in that attunement is the best way to develop self-regulation um co-regulation is actually a, a term that's often used mm -hmm. right
So that's really good. You're kind of describing what might be a little tiny bit realistic for a toddler as far as, uh, you know, developing, beginning to develop a little bit of resiliency. I know that you talk a lot in your book about using nursery nursery rhymes and fairy tales and those stories to talk about resiliency or, you know, just things that you can do to solve your own problems. So let's talk about that because those are things that we are all familiar with. And, um, and I think it's a really interesting conversation. Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, so, uh, for very young children, fairy tales are probably not the the the, the ideal literature. Probably mm-hmm. starting at two and a half, three, they become a little, a little bit more appropriate. But nursery rhymes have always been used by parents and caregivers of young children, of, of, of babies. Um, you know, think about patty cake, patty cake, or um, the eatsy weetsy spider falls down the water spout. Um, that though being sharing many of those with young children does a, a bunch of things that promote resilience. Um, first of all, it offers kids the opportunity or children the opportunity with rich oral language experiences, which um, if we're, we're trying to translate what's going on outside and inside of us, um, we know that, that babies don't have words. And so the more rich experience with with speech and back and forth communication we offer them, the more we're giving them the words that they will be able to use to ask for what they need and and describe what they're feeling. But um, beyond that, if you think of sharing nursery rhymes with with uh, a, a very young child, think about those protective factors. We've got attachment relationships. You're not standing in the kitchen necessarily doing something else. Usually when we share um, nursery rhymes with children, we're with them. We They are on our laps. We are in close proximity. We are giving them eye contact and all of those things that for a child says, this person loves me. This person is, is, is my person. And so there's that, that whole attachment relationship thing that that is is happening with when we share. When we think about initiative, if we if you think about the nursery rhymes that are, are most most popular, uh, they all involve some kind of motion. And so children are moving. You know, eensy weensy spider goes down the water spout or up the water spout. Um, the children are making those those motions. We're making the motions first, and they're tuning into us and then figuring out how to replicate those motions. And that triggers, I mean, th- so they're taking an active role in creating that nursery rhyme themselves. I mean, that's that's part of initiative. Um, when they say, again, again, I mean, think about peekaboo. That's initiative. <laughs> That's initiative. <laughs> and we may be like, oh, <laughs> I'm about done with this peekaboo. It's been 737 times that we played peekaboo today. Um, but they we are offering them the opportunity to take control of their environment. Right. And and that to me is is, I mean, but even even a very young infant, um, when they when they giggle gleefully when we are engaging with with stories or nursery rhymes or just conversation, then and we when we do it again, we're showing them that they when they act, there's an impact, and I think that that's so important. Um, mm-hmm. As far as self regulation goes, it, again, it's that co regulation. We're 
paying attention to what the child is doing and saying, we're imitating them or they're imitating us. And it's that serve and return, that back and forth that goes on through a lot of these very simple little um, games and, and poems that um, helps them. I mean, that has to develop. Like babies don't know to pay attention. To, I mean, they're they're fixated on us, but they don't know to pay attention to to cues, to shifts, to changes in tone, unless they have that experience and all of these wonderful, playful um, opportunities to to use language. Okay. give children that ability they start to develop that self-regulation as well um mm -hmm. and to know that you know if the, the down comes the rain and wash the spider out um then you shift and then out comes the sun you don't get the sun out there until till the rain and um the, those those kinds of simple things that we don't really think about we you know that they, they in fact i think in a lot of uh, there's some research that says that uh, a lot of parents don't know those simple nursery rhymes anymore uh, mother goose all of that is kind of like oh that's old stuff it's out the door but but a lot of like even ring around the rosy i mean i think of like a, a group of toddlers playing ring around the rosy that's a huge action for self-regulation mm -hmm. um because they can't fall down before it's you know they get to the end of it they have to listen they have to pay attention then they then they know they all fall down and <laughs> it's so much fun and it reinforces that that ability to move as a group and do it um and and follow those those simple cues and and directions so i mean those there there's so much rich, rich opportunity um right. with, with those yeah and um, you know what you say about um nursery rhymes and fairy tales being very uh, dated and and very many of them are very dated. But the thing that I think we need to remember is that we can change the story. You know, we can change the words of Itsy Bitty Spider to make it what feels right for you. You know, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the words in the rhyme. What it is, is all of those things that you just mentioned. And um, those are the things that people are doing anyways, probably as they are interacting with their child and just kind of unknowingly building the, the, the strengths that children need to have resilience when these stress factors happen to come into their life. And so that's a really neat way to look at it, that um, what we're already doing is doing the job. Yes. <laughs> it's and, just a matter yeah. of focusing in on it and being aware and doing it more. I, and I think that that's the big thing. I think we, that often parents are so busy that they don't recognize that what what infants and toddlers and all young children need is eye contact, playful interactions, caring, and those simple little things. Even if you're diapering the baby, um, you can you can change uh, the incy bincy spider into a diaper song if that <laughs> if that's sure. what you want. They yeah. need that rhythm, that interaction, that attunement, the actions. Um, you can describe for a baby what you're doing as you're as you're diapering them, and that does the same kinds of wonderful things that sitting and and doing a, a nursery rhyme um, with them uh, mm -hmm. do. As long as you approach it with a playful, a lot of language, describe what you're doing. Oh, your little fists are. You don't. Oh, my hands were cold, weren't they? Oh thinking about giving them that that opportunity to to be recognized as an individual who has thoughts and feelings of their own and that you're going to help them through whatever kinds of uncomfortable things even if it's just um your cold hands on a 
on a winter day as you, as you're changing their diapers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that little spider can just crawl right up their tummy during a diaper change too. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. Do you have any other ideas, some practical ways to promote playfulness? Any, 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 uh, anything else? I think, I think um, when you think, when I think of play, I often think of, of um, initiative is, is so, so huge in children's play. And often the materials that we provide for children don't allow for a lot of independent or creative thinking. And so thinking about um, for older kids, I'm, I'm a big fan of loose parts um, for infants and toddlers. You don't want to put the button box out in front of them for, for fear that they're going to choke on them, but giving children open-ended materials. So maybe it's the pots and pans in your kitchen. I mean, that's a classic thing that people, you know, I'm, I'm I, I worked full time when my children were young. So I was always looking for ways of trying to get that interaction with them, that playfulness with them, even though I was exhausted from working with other people's children all day. Um, and so you're just like getting the pots and pans out as I was cooking dinner and letting children, um, when we think about banging, okay, they banged, but they also built with them and like stacked them. And, uh, you know, toddlers like to, to stack and knock over. It's a whole scheme that they do. And so getting your, your plastic containers out while you're cooking dinner and letting them stack and knock them over gives them that sense that one, you hear them, you see them, you love them, you want to be close to them. And two, that you want, you respect their ideas. You, you respect their initiative that they can, they can think of creative and wonderful things to do with you know, recycling. Right. Um, and I, you know, think just looking for those kinds of opportunities in everything that we do. If you're driving in a car with a child, which we, we many of us do a lot of, um, singing those nursery rhymes, talking about describing what you say. I mean, a lot of children will recognize us, the first word they learn is stop because of stop signs, not, not because their parents are only saying I mean, when they learn to read it. Um, and it's because parents are driving along going, oh, we better stop at the stop sign, stop at stop sign. Just that ongoing conversation offers kids language and it's that connection. Children don't know that they're in our hearts all the time. And I, I think that that the more we can assure them of that through our words, through our smiles and gestures, um, the, the, the more strong those, um, relationships, those bonds are that are critical for resilience. Right. Yeah. That is, um, so great. I mean, that you are, everything that you have said has just been rich with information. And so I would encourage you if you're listening to maybe go back, rewind to the part that kind of jumped out at you and listen to it again, because this is a lot to take in. I know that you've provided our listeners with a resource sheet. Tell me about that. Um, I compiled a bunch of resources as a as a busy person. Um, I, I you can find on the internet you can find everything about resilience, about brain development, about toxic stress, about all of these things. Um, but I compiled a list of what I think are some of the the most um, valid and practical websites, um, including resources. Um, Harvard Center on the, the Developing Child has a great, really practical resource guide that goes from infancy all the way up through adolescence of things you can do to develop resilience and, and executive functions. Um, there's a, a a lot of people aren't aware that Sesame Street has a rich library of 
um, uh, uh, videos and resources for um, parents and caregivers on a wide variety of of what I call the big T uh, trauma topics, um, as well as as other things. They have a whole series on resilience. They have a series on parental incarceration and all, all sorts of things. And I encourage people to go and, and check out those resources. They're all free. Um, they're high quality done by experts in the field. Um, there are lots of, you know, some specific topics on there. Um, one thing that I, I um, uh, would like to add is I found a wonderful resource on temperament that actually, I don't know if your readers have something about that, but I'm going to make sure that I, I share that with um, you as well. Okay, great. That is a lot of information. Thank you so much for being with me here today, Stephanie, and for sharing your such important work with um, with all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anne. And I, I respect so much what you're doing to, to share great information with parents who, who truly love their children. And we all want to do our best for our kids. And Absolutely. Podcasts like this really will, will help parents be able to, to take it to the next level. So I appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you love today's episode, take a minute and subscribe to our podcast. And one last thing, I'd love to pray for you and your baby if you'd like for me to. You can email me at ask at nurturednoggins.com. Your request can be as simple as just one word, or it can include an explanation. Either way, you can trust that I will pray for you. It's a quiet, simple way that I can connect with you and your family and support you in your parenting journey.